0: Jeff
1: The RAF drones take out two IS fighters in Syria, and there's more to come. Putin's forces reinforced in Syria. We explain why. A new report warns against cuts in UK security. True or false? Is the IRA back on the streets of Northern Ireland? And today, the Labour Party votes for a new leader. Could it really be a red-letter day? A perfectly legal act of self-defence was how the Defence Secretary described the RAF drone strike in Syria, which killed two British jihadi fighters. And Michael Fallon has said Britain is prepared to carry out similar action in the future. It came after British and American intelligence suggested the two men had been actively plotting attacks in Britain. Well, on the line is Sir William Patey, a former British ambassador in Afghanistan and the Middle East, and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me here in the studio. Hello to both of you. Sir William, first of all, a British drone strike in Syria, was that the right thing to do?
2: Well, I think the Prime Minister had to make a call if uh, there was the intelligence, and I assume it's based on intelligence, that uh, uh, individuals were planning attacks in the United Kingdom and he had an opportunity to preempt and stop these attacks. Uh, He would have been severely criticised if he hadn't uh, taken the appropriate action.
1: And uh, legally he justified it under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, saying member states have an inherent right of self-defence. Do you think he was justified then?
2: He would have had advice from the Attorney General. I'm not a lawyer. The Attorney General is the uh, the government's principal legal adviser. Uh, he would have had to meet the test of self defence and imminence. Uh, uh, were these people planning future attacks? Was this the only way to uh, uh, to stop them? Uh, and uh, uh, if he was satisfied that, that was the case, then. Uh, a reasonable thing to do. I think most people in Britain would expect the Prime Minister to take appropriate measures to stop uh, these fanatics from uh, uh, conducting atrocities on the streets of Great Britain.
1: Christopher Lee, there are, there are calls from Labour and the SNP for the Intelligence and Security Committee to get to the table to investigate, in particular, the intelligence on which this was based. Do you agree?
3: Yeah, it's part of the, the job of the committee to actually to actually do that. So yes, what is interesting? Two points particularly interesting here. One is the attorney comes along and he says, "Well, you know, under Article Fifty One, here are the conditions that why uh, why we have uh, a legal basis for doing this." The attorney doesn't look at the intelligence picture and doesn't interrogate that. Doesn't sort of say, "Well, a- a- on that basis, I can give you an assurance." Uh, he is there to give. Uh, almost like case history, you, you can actually do that. And so the Prime Minister's okay to get along with it. You could then argue later, of course, whether or not the intelligence, and which is what the committee would do, whether the intelligence was in fact as good as the Prime Minister said it was or, or, or judged it was, it wasn't the Attorney who would have done it. But the most important thing... Is is whether uh, the intelligence was 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 right, mm. and if you look at what happened, and you look at also the arrests that the MI five were making, or not not making, but the MI five were pointing to, of people who were being picked up, the other end of the of the attempt at some atrocity, then you begin to get a bigger picture.
1: Sir William Patey, uh, those calling for more transparency of the intelligence on which it were based cite this so-called dodgy dossier on Iraq. Do you think it's important that, that we know more these days about the kind of intelligence on which these kind of decisions are based?
2: Well, I think it's reasonable that the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee sh- Commission should have a look at this. I don't think all this stuff can be conducted in the public gaze. Otherwise, you give an advantage to the people who are trying to uh, avoid detection. So there's a limit to how much can be in the public gaze. I mean, the, the intelligence in Iraq, I was heavily involved in the lead-up uh, in, in, in Iraq, uh, was, was patchy. But that, uh, it always is. You never get a complete picture. You have to make a judgment. And, uh, and I think the problem is that the government has to get it right 100% the time and the terrorists only have to get it right once uh, so you, you're, there is a dilemma and uh, essentially it's a judgment call uh, at the end of the day and uh, I suspect the British public would prefer the Prime Minister to make a judgment call on their behalf rather than on the uh, on the behalf of declared terrorists.
3: There's another side of this, isn't it? It's not some smiley just sitting around saying, "I don't know." I think this, on, on, on the basis this, this might be happening. You've got so many different a- agencies now: you've got uh, GCHQ, uh, uh, the Security uh, SIS, and the Americans all piling in this. And don't forget, the Americans had a go at getting these guys about four weeks earlier. What you can do with intelligence, you can assess the capability of an action that might follow. What you can't do is is fix the intention and agree the intention. And that's the judgment that the Prime Minister eventually has to take himself.
1: So what next? Back in the summer we asked the Chief of the Air Staff about the possibility of extending airstrikes beyond Iraq and into Syria. Here's what Air Chief Marshal Sir Andrew Pulford had to say back then.
0: Well, of course that is a, a political decision to, to broaden the area of operations Um, and in that case that that would simply be a change of the geographical scope of the operation and I have nothing, uh, as it were, more to add uh, in terms of aircraft, for the reasons we've discussed,
3: there are there are no more to put into a fight.
1: So, Christopher, he seems to be saying there we can carry out airstrikes over Iraq or Syria, but not both.
3: No, the I mean, the, the RA has got limited limited resources in the in 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 the theatre, um, and we've also got to remember that some like sixty percent of the forces uh, of the of the airstrikes into Iraq, in fact, are aborted. He cannot he he, he can't go everywhere with his aircraft because he hasn't got aircraft to do that. The other part of this, we should watch carefully. The Prime Minister is about to go to the House of Commons for a second time to ask permission, Parliament's permission, to start a bombing campaign, or at least take part in the coalition bombing of Syria. The wording of that, uh, of what he asks the Parliament permission to do, is very important, because is the bombing just just a sort of symbol of the whole thing? Is it, I don't mean boots on the ground, but is it in fact a blanket which he says, okay? we will take whatever action we think is appropriate. We don't have to go back to Parliament every five minutes to ask them for a next action.
1: Sir William pacey if you were advising the government at the moment, what would you be saying?
3: Well,
2: I'd be saying the current strategy is not working, that you need to do something more to, uh, uh, to deal with ISIS, because uh, on the present uh, trajectory, we're looking at sort of, you know, five, ten years, and by that that half the population of Syria will have made its way to Europe or elsewhere. So you've got a, you've got a crisis that uh, needs some sort of resolution. The current strategy isn't going to deliver that so you need to do something else. It's, uh, so I think some of the moves to engage with Russia and Iran about a, uh, a political settlement backed up by a greater military engagement, I mean, it's always been illogical that the British, uh, British planes could attack ISIS targets in, uh, in Iraq, but couldn't do so in Syria. Uh, but I think it's marginal in terms of uh, the impact it would have. Uh, uh, as Chris said, you know, the... There's a limit to what we can do. It doesn't make it doesn't make a logical sense to say we can only do it in Iraq and Syria. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that taking part in airstrikes in Syria is going to be a fundamental change in the in the equ- equation. It needs it needs something bigger than that.
3: I was in um, talking to some people in Washington last weekend, and they were saying, you know, we get a sense here, even here in America, that what we're talking about is a much bigger picture that people. Don't need to understand, and that is almost the complete putting back together a Middle East in a form that it understands itself. It's almost as if in the 1920s, when the Middle East was redrawn into shapes like, you know, Iraq, Syria, etc. Um, all this is changing, and um, Syria is part of what is changing. And we haven't got a solution for Syria yet. It may be partition. But we haven't got a solution yet, and that is the difficulty. Nobody actually knows how you fix what is a daily newspaper and a headline, which is, what do we do about Syria?
1: Nobody actually knows. Do you know what to do, Sir William Patey?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I'm going to tell you a great cliche. It's all very complicated. Uh, But uh, even if there was partition in Syria, we would would not be happy for that partition to include an ISIS-dominated state. Because uh, that is that is a that it would be a cancer at the heart of the Middle East, and would uh, uh, and would not be one we're compatible with. I think we need to have a go at trying to find a political solution in Syria that would be acceptable to most Syrians, and that that means a deal between the Assad regime and the and the the non-ISIS opposition. If you get that, you've then got the basis for uh, a combination of forces against ISIS which would include the Russians and the Iranians Mm. Uh, if you could could manufacture that you would then have the basis for taking much more robust action against ISIS
1: Alright, Sir William Patey, thank you very much for your time. Well let's stay with Syria and and it does appear that Russia is increasing its military presence there it's sending advisors and equipment on an increased scale. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has expressed his concerns.
4: That will not uh, contribute to solve the conflict Uh, I think it's important to now support all efforts to find a political solution uh, to the conflict in Syria, and we support very much the efforts by the UN to try to find a political solution to the conflict in
5: Syria.
1: Well, we're joined now by The Times' diplomatic editor, Roger Boyce. Uh, good to speak to you today, Roger. Russia has always backed President Assad. What's different about this latest intervention? Um,
6: well, um, yes, what is different? Uh, first of all, I think... Um, uh, I think Putin is more rattled than he was before. Uh, the rebels have got Idlib, which is very close to the alawite uh, Assad controlled uh, area, and could soon uh, infringe on that um, and they 're very close to cutting a main highway north of damascus which um, which will make it extremely difficult for the regime. Um, uh, to uh, wage any kind of war, never mind supply itself. So, the Russians are rattled in a military sense and uh, clearly Assad has asked them for more equipment and for some kind of assistance, perhaps, on on the ground. So, that's the first thing that's changed. And the second thing that's changed is that I think Putin is beginning to move away from Ukraine um, as, uh, uh, and Wants to really end the conversation on Ukraine, and be accepted as a player in the great concert of nations. Be be accepted as a a part of the solution um, um, uh, in, in uh, against ISIS. So he's um, trying
1: to rehabilitate his international standing. Do you think?
6: Yes, he has. I mean, he's he's very quick on his feet, and he sees that. Um, uh, that the West is extremely worried and the Europeans is, uh, in particular are extremely worried about immigration and he's, he's basically starting a conversation which says um, look uh, immigration is your big problem they're coming from Syria or they're coming because of Syria um, um, therefore we have um, uh, uh, therefore I'm indispensable to you um in uh, beating isis in syria and creating the the um the first step towards a solution in syria because frankly the immigrants that are coming to europe are, are a symptom um um, and um, it's you know it's co- the, the the actual cause is the is the chaos and the meltdown in Syria.
1: But this makes an already complicated situation even more complicated. I suppose there could be a, a miscalculation. American aircraft or perhaps even British could end up bombing Russians inadvertently in Syria. What would happen then?
6: Well, yes, <laughs> in, indeed it does. Uh, uh, I mean, if. if well, there's two possibilities where it could really go hopelessly wrong. One is that we do cooperate with the Russians um, in fighting ISIS. Um,
1: and your thinking on that is what?
6: Um, well, publicly, it's against. Uh, but you'll find an awful lot of people saying, "Well, we can't actually defeat ISIS in the time frame that we need without ground troops. We're not willing to supply ground troops, but the Syrian army is." more or less competent and with uh, and Russian advised and with Iranian uh, flanking support it could actually become uh, an important element in the defeat of ISIS um, but but I mean that's, there's a lot of jumps a lot of uh, ideological jumps and a lot of moral jumps you've got to make because of course Assad has got a lot of blood on his hands um, so 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 we could do that, um, and we run all sorts of risks uh, by cooperating, and not just moral risks but and political risks, but also military risks. Or we could not cooperate, um, and the Russians go ahead anyway, and they they take their Sukhois uh, over Idlib and uh, northern um, Syria and start bombing. And suddenly we find ourselves then, British and American planes, primarily American planes in the same uh, disputed airspace as Russian planes. And then you have all sorts of possibilities of things going wrong.
1: Christopher?
3: I tell you, 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 you you're talking there, Roger, about uh, Italy, but it's very important. north province, once um, the, once uh, ISIS or whoever has got control over that, and also the administration of it, then the Russians have calculated that uh, Syria is de facto... Partitioned, Um, they are falling back on the on on the on what is I would call a a sad territory. Look what was brought uh, recently into Syria. They brought something called uh, a certain infantry combat vehicle. It's called a BTR eighty-two. Now, the importance of that is that nobody has seen those outside of Russia. They're putting important equipment in there. They're putting the tigers in there. They've got new weapon systems. They're putting in hospitals... As well, their own hospitals, they are there for quite serious fighting. And then Sukhoi's, etc., they are also there. You're going to actually have uh, not a war by proxy, as we've seen before, but you're going to have them on both sides, different sides, and therefore you've actually effectively got America versus Russia in another territory. And one of the results of this is the Russians, the next thing the Russians are going to start piling in, because we've actually still seen the bases in one of the uh, launcher systems that was on the uh, uh, Nikolai uh, Filchnikov uh, a transport ship, uh, drones. Christmas. And the, Ru- the uh, uh, Syrians are going to get drones from the Russians.
1: Roger Boys, what do you think will be the next stage we see in this situation?
6: Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I'm not sure that the Putin motives are absolutely clear yet and it could be that these people have an extended these russians moving in with their equipment that they have an extended protective functioning Mm -hmm. that's part of an end game i i probably part of an end game in which uh, russia assumes that there'll be a partitioning of syria and they will be in some and the alawites and um, uh, the Assad court will somehow become a Russian protectorate. And so you need that. Mm-hmm. And you need to also to be able to evacuate um, uh, uh, Russians who are still there. There's quite a lot of Russians still on the ground who are actually not soldiers, but um, intermarried with Syrians uh, mm-hmm. f- from the old days. And they're all going to have to be evacuated um, uh, at some stage. So... Um, so it, it could be, I wouldn't say innocent uh, exactly, because oh, right. nothing that Putin does is absolutely innocent, but it, it could be that it's a purely defensive posture and therefore not something that would necessarily lead to uh, a confrontation with us. Um, the problem seems to me mainly in, uh, in, in conflict over the air. There's, there's mm-hmm. too many near misses going on around the world as it is between right. Russian and, and US aircraft without having to worry about syria as well all
1: right roger boys from the times Th- thank you for your time today sit-rep with bro. Bro. still to come is the ira still active in northern ireland and what will a new leader of the opposition mean for defense security and foreign affairs in parliament <laughs> the fbs sit rep the government has been warned that proposed cuts at the Foreign Office and Home Office could have serious implications for national security. The Royal United Services Institute says plans to make savings at agencies dealing with immigration and organised crime could undermine the efforts to tackle the rising challenge of migration. Our reporter James Hurst has been speaking to RUSI's research director, Professor Malcolm Chalmers.
6: What do you think the effect on Britain's defence and security would be if... Those cuts do go ahead as expected at the
3: the foreign and home offices. Well,
0: if if there was to be a 25% cut, then you'd have to have very significant cuts in the number of personnel who are manning our borders, uh, processing asylum claims, combating organised crime and trying to find out what's happening in foreign countries, which, to be frank, we haven't always understood very well in the past when we've conducted interventions. So it would diminish the effectiveness of our defence effort, uh, if we don't have the proper on-the-ground knowledge which the Foreign Office is often best placed to provide. It's part of the jigsaw. It's not a case of one or the other. I think what's happened in part is the government has focused on the big budgets. They've provided budgetary protection to the Ministry of Defence and to the aid effort. But they've neglected some of the smaller but nevertheless critical elements in our national security so far.
6: They have, though, created uh, this pot of money, as yet unallocated, that will go towards meeting the the 2% commitment. Actually, isn't that a very flexible
0: answer to respond to defence and security challenges? Well, we don't know much about the nature of the Joint Security Fund, which is being set up. My understanding is that the Foreign Office uh, will not be able to get funding from it. It will only be for the Ministry of Defence and the intelligence agencies. But, you know, these flexible funds are very useful for programmes. If you're running a number of projects and programmes, specific contracts for specific purposes, but you also need core capabilities. You need an effective diplomatic service. Uh, You need uh, an effective border force uh, which can police our borders on a long-term basis and it's that core funding that is still open for discussion in the spending review.
1: That was RUC's research director, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, talking to James Hurst. Um, on the other side, the Commons Defence Committee, busy this week, launched uh, two new inquiries, and notably, one of them is about the, the credible threats facing the UK, and uh, it's interested in particular in the government's ability to evaluate those threats and respond to them.
3: It's got uh, Julian Lewis, the chairman of the Defence Committee, has got him written all over this. You know, uh, he wants he wants to make sure that before government actually says, right, here's your defence budget, this is what you've got to do that the government actually knows what it wants defence to do for it, you mm. see. So you've got, is there international terrorists? Uh, what, what sort of state is, there? is there a surge in serious crime? Hostile attacks by cyberspace? All these things he wants to know because the most important paper on this will be published in November and it will be... What is the threat, and that's what Julian Lewis is after. I know. After. I
1: know the Defence Committee is looking for submissions uh, to this inquiry. C- can anyone put them in?
3: Oh yeah, you do. You going put are one dates. in, Christopher? Uh, well, they've asked me anyway. So, <laughs> okay. so, so Well, it would be, it'd be rude not to go. Um, but no, what you do, you go onto the website of the of the House of Commons Defence Committee. Google it. Yeah, and it will say at the bottom of the mm. House of Commons Defence Committee's uh, page when to submit your written, uh, your written questions.
1: Let's move on. A murder linked to the IRA has sparked a political crisis in Northern Ireland. Police believe members or former members of the paramilitary group were involved in the shooting of former IRA man Kevin McGuigan last month. Well, now the power-sharing agreement is unstable and may even collapse. We can now talk to Northern Ireland writer and commentator Chris Ryder. Good to speak to you today, Chris. Um, is the IRA in any form still alive in the province?
4: Well, according to the assessment by the chief uh, police officers on both sides of the border, the IRA has disbanded all its active service units and is not on a war footing, to put it uh, mildly. But nevertheless, both uh, the police officers agree that there is an IRA uh, involvement in one of these murders. And the arrest of three very prominent IRA people in Belfast has tipped this crisis. Um, from one of of full outrage into into much more serious threat now to the institutions. Uh, There's a meeting to take place later on Thursday um, at which it will be decided uh, where where the the crisis goes. Um, There could be a move to uh, suspend the Assembly for a temporary period to allow talks to take place about the welfare reform and other issues that have been bubbling away in the background. Uh, but uh, it, it's more likely that the, the Assembly may well be suspended. Now, the DUP, uh, that's the main Protestant drivers party, have said that unless the Assembly is suspended and until there's clarification about the link between Féin and the IRA, they're going to resign all their seats as ministers. And that will bring about a crisis which will draw in both the British and Irish governments. Um, that would mean effectively the end of devolved institutions and probably a protracted period of talks before another election. So uh, it's, a, it's unclear where this is going to go. But mm. the stakes are very high now because the DUP have uh, tried to keep up with the Ulster Unionist Party at been more outraged about the so-called IRA involvement
1: yeah. in well, these two murders. And given the situation, where does it leave Sinn Féin?
4: Well, should Fianne are are caught in a difficult position, they they have collapsed the Stormont House Agreement that was reached last Christmas because they don't want to be seen to be uh, agreeing with welfare reform and austerity in Northern Ireland at a time when they're opposing it in the Irish Republic and where they're bidding to be members of of, of the next Irish government after the general election, which is due there in the next couple of months. So they're they're, uh, trying to ride two horses at the same time if you like uh, and not compromise their electoral efforts in either part of Ireland uh, for next year which is the year of 1916 the centenary of the rising and they want to see this as a great celebration of Irish republicanism
1: What do you think that the, the results of the current crisis will be? Is it all about politics or you do, do you think you're going to see people taken to the streets?
4: I don't think we're going to see people take to the streets um, uh, the, 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 the vast majority of people have long been uh, uh, held stormed in contempt because of the, the mutual veto that exists between Sinn Féin and the EUP, where no business is done, where big decisions are put off, where they seem to be in a perpetual state of crisis. Uh, so there's no great uh, angst on the streets. There's no great uh, interest, really. Most people just shrug their shoulders and say, why don't they get on with it? Uh, that's, that's the real nub of the crisis. It's really a political crisis. It's really... Uh, based on manufactured outrage by both sides and it, it, it really is switching off normal people uh, to, to even greater uh, distance from politics, even greater disrespect for them.
1: All right, Chris Ryder, thank you very much for joining us. Well, on Saturday morning, we will know who will stand opposite David Cameron in the House of Commons. If left-winger Jeremy Corbyn becomes that person, he's going to make things very difficult for the government, particularly when it comes to matters of defence and security. Let's talk to the BBC World Service political correspondent Rob Watson. Hello, Rob.
5: Hello. Long time no speak. Yeah.
1: Nice to have you back.
5: Greetings, all.
1: (laughs) Greetings. Uh, Reminders of the candidates and how they stand on defence.
5: Well, there are four candidates. You've got Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall. And essentially, they all stand pretty much in the same place as sort of the government does, really. They're in favour of NATO, they're in favour of renewing Trident, and by and large, they're in favour of spending about 2% of uh, GDP on, mm-hmm. uh, on defence. The standout candidate, you're not going to be <laughs> at all surprised to hear this, is Jeremy Corbyn, who is lukewarm about the EU. He wants a debate about Britain's membership of NATO. He certainly doesn't want to spend 2% of Britain's money on defence. And, uh, and he's definitely, definitely not in favour of ever using Britain's armed forces in any circumstances he can think of, and certainly not in favour of renewing Trident. <gasps> uh, I'll take a breath.
1: Mm, uh, Christopher, suppose we do have Jeremy Corbyn in opposition, um, in the British, gu- in, the, in the Commons. What, what effect do you think that's going to have on debates surrounding defence?
3: Um, the, the debates will be repetitious, that's the first thing, because the issues are quite clear. Like he doesn't want Trident, but that doesn't mean to say the rest of his party. And it's the parliamentary party. What we're seeing here, in fact, the phenomenon we're seeing here, was created by uh, the predecessor, Ed, Ed Miliband, who opened up the vote. members and hangers-on of the party, whereas before it was an internal thing, and so you've got a division now between, if you like, the people and and Parliament itself. You've got to remember also, I think, Rob, this is right, that when a president says that whatever the ideals of your leader, with the exception of uh, the time of uh, Tony Blair, um, it is not just simply... Go into cabinet and say, by the way, I want to tr- uh, cancel Trident. I want to do this, not get join NATO or, or not stay with NATO, or like that. Government doesn't actually work that way.
5: You're quite right, but i I'd just say this briefly, and that is that George Osborne, David Cameron and all sorts of other people in the Conservative Party, they're sitting there, they're rubbing their hands. Can you hear me making that hand-rubbing noise, thinking we know what our line of Heard attack is going to be? Of...
1: <laughs> so, so, Rob, who, who do you think... We don't
5: trust them on security, yes. Just, just the speculation
1: yes. front at the moment, who do you think the Chief of Defence Staff would like to see at the head in the Labour Party?
5: Anyone but Corbyn. ABC. I don't think that's. I don't think that was a difficult question to answer. We can we can
1: we can see what what transpires over the coming hours. Uh, It's good to speak to you, Rob Watson. You too, Um, Christopher. um, This time next week, we will have been uh, to Excel in London. There's a big uh, exhibition taking place, isn't there?
3: It's defence and security equipment. Is what it means, Um, and it, it. This is good equipment. And the th- one sort of things that you'll find there is uh, a the German company, Rheinmetall. They're putting out their high-energy laser, and that will be ship-borne. You'll and be it,
1: there. You'll be looking at it, will you?
3: I, I I shall turn myself into a naval anorak for the day.
1: <laughs> for the day. I
3: know this. This I tell you. This laser can take out an 80-millimeter ball bearing. I shall be taking out a ball bearing, right. and I shall toss it in the air and see if it can do it. Watch out <laughs> for c- it when you're I there. I
1: cannot wait to talk to you about it this time next week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. Who knows what we'll be seeing and talking about. Bye-bye. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music. For the British forces. This is BFBS Radio, Radio.
5: 2. Radio.